Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We'll begin reading at verse 12. It's on page 1609. The Bible's provided for you. So this is the lectionary epistle text for Trinity Sunday this year. Uh, And if you listen carefully, you'll hear why this is the lectionary text for Trinity Sunday. There are not a lot of... It's so interesting that the child said, I've never heard that story before about the Trinity. Well, it's... It's, as Ms. Janelle said, it's not really a story. In fact, there's only a handful of places where explicitly we hear mentioned together the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is one of them, where all three members are listed. Uh, Romans 8, sorry, all three persons are listed. I want to be precise. Romans 8, um, verses uh, 12 through 17. Listen to God's word. Therefore, Brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. So in verse 15, it says, By the Spirit and the Son we cry, Abba, Father. That word Abba does not refer to the good people who brought us the song Dancing Queen. That's the sermon next week. Uh, it, 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 there's a footnote in your Bible that says that Abba is the Aramaic word for father. That's true, but maybe more accurately, the word Abba is the Aramaic word for dada. Dada. Abba is the Aramaic word for what a one-year-old child would call his or her father. Dada. I find this so fascinating. I've mentioned this little factoid before, but in, uh, in virtually every part of the world, in virtually every language, we're talking Western languages, we're talking Eastern languages, we're talking indigenous languages, aboriginal languages, in languages that developed completely independent from one another, in pretty much every language, the word for dada is remarkably similar. Same for mama, for that matter. Remarkably similar. Uh, It's either dada, or abba, or papa, or baba. In almost every single language, it's remarkably similar. And the reason for that is um, somewhat obvious. These are the sounds, the very first noises 
that a child can make with their mouths. And so these are the sounds, these are the noises that we have turned into words and attached to the most important relationships in children's lives, their fathers and their mothers. Makes a lot of sense. Here's why this is so significant, I think. So Paul says in this text, by the Son and the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, he could have used another word for Father there. Even in Aramaic, there are multiple other words. But he says, by the, by the Spirit and the Son, we cry, Abba, Father. And I feel like he's telling us something very important about ourselves and something very important about God. What he's telling us about ourselves um, is something very humbling because he's calling us little children. Uh, Paul is insinuating that we are essentially infants. He's saying we are just like children in that we don't necessarily know what we need or know what we want. We don't even need, sometimes know the things that we're asking for. Like if you think about a one-year-old child and the only one or two words that they have in their vocabulary is ah-ba-ba-ba-ba or ma-ma-ma-ma-ma. When the one-year-old child makes that sound, what are they asking for? Well, they're asking for a person, but more so they're asking for a solution, right? And it could be one of a thousand things, a thousand things. Maybe they're hungry, maybe they're lonely, maybe they're scared, maybe they're whiny, maybe they're in a bad mood. We have no idea what that child is asking for, but what they do know is who, where to go to find the thing that they need, right? We are, Paul is saying we are the same way. He's saying we are like little children. We understand very little about ourselves. And we also understand very little about God. I mean, no offense to those of you who are one-year-olds, but there is very little self-awareness there, right? <laughs> like, very little. And there's even less awareness of who this entity is that clothes me and feeds me and cares for me. There's very little self-awareness, very little awareness of their parental units. They have no idea, they have very little sense of the relationship between them. But what they do know, what a one-year-old does know, is that they have needs. And when they have needs, they say, ah, ba 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 and something tends to happen. A one-year-old cannot always articulate their needs. They can't always be patient as their needs are being met. They don't always understand why it's taking so long for Abba Baba to fix the problem, but they know where to go for help. Paul says, that's us. We understand very little about ourselves. We understand very little about God, but when we're at our best... We know where to go for help. So that's what this verse tells us about ourselves. Here's what this verse tells us about the Father, about God. The Father listens to his children when they talk, even to their baby talk. He listens to their baby talk. All we can muster is ah-ba-ba-ba-ba, and then with a love that is greater than any love a parent has ever shown, the father says, yes, my daughter. The father says, yes, my son. 
We might be tired, we might be hungry, we might be scared, we might just be whiny, be in a bad mood, but our Father listens to us with a perfect and patient kind of love, and he says, yes, my daughter, yes, my son. People so often think of the Christian God as being some kind of angry, cosmic law enforcer with a rule book in one hand and a whip in the other hand, right? And he's coming after us. This is why the gospel needs to be spread because those rumors need to be killed, right? Our God is Abba. He's Abba. He looks at us with love the way that a parent would look at a young, young child. And not only that, but just like a parent will do for a child, our father assumes our ignorance. He assumes our infantile behavior. Thank God my parents never expected me to act like I was 40 when I was one. The same with our Abba. He assumes our lack of self-sufficiency. He assumes our inability to comprehend him or even to properly comprehend ourselves. He assumes our ignorance. This is maybe a good time to talk about theology. What is theology? So theology is a fancy word that means like the study of God or the study of divinity. What are we doing when we do theology? I think that the best that can be said is that when we're doing theology, we're simply imagining. We're imagining. Uh, when we're doing theology, we are trying to put words to the unspeakable. We are trying to grasp the ungraspable. We are trying to imagine the unimaginable. That's what theology is. And there's good theology and there's bad theology, but that's what theology is. So uh, in, my, in my study, in my office here at church, I have a, one wall is lined with books of theology, and they are wonderful books. And I love those books. And I probably take a little bit too much pride in those books. And they're beautiful books, but also sometimes I can stand back and look at those books and just laugh, right? Because here on these shelves in this office is an explanation of God. No. That's not how this works. These books are just a meager grasping at God. They're a meager grasping at God. At best, we are like infants in our understanding of God. And it see, so it seems to me that good theology is always humble theology. I don't see how it could be any other way. Good theology is always humble theology. Good theology knows that it is wrong. Isn't that interesting? Good theology knows that it is wrong, or at least good theology knows that it is unthinkably incomplete. 
unthinkably incomplete. Thomas Aquinas, uh, maybe the greatest systematic uh, theologian to ever live. You don't hear much about him as a Protestant because he's a Roman Catholic and we tend to just draw a line there. But he was probably, probably one of the greatest systematic theologians ever to live. He, he, he was, what he did was just absolutely remarkable. Uh, on his deathbed, Thomas Aquinas said that everything he ever said, everything he ever thought, or everything he ever wrote about God is nothing more than straw. And I love that. It was kind of a deathbed confession for him. The greatest theologian, maybe, who's ever lived. Now, I get that as a deathbed confession. What I would love is if you and I could live that way. You know what I mean? A deathbed confession is one thing. What if we could live that way? What if we could walk by faith that way? What if we could hold our own theology with such humility day by day? What if we could believe with that kind of humility. I love it when brilliant theologians have that kind of humility. Uh, I read a sermon this week by Barbara Brown Taylor. Is one of her, she's one of my favorite preachers. It was one of her sermons on Trinity Sunday. <clears throat> and this is how she started her sermon. She said, the Trinity. Who are these people? How can God the Father be his own son? Right? And if Jesus is God, then who is Jesus always praying to? And then where does the Holy Spirit come into all of this? Is that the Spirit of God? Or is that the Spirit of Jesus? Or is that some different Spirit altogether? And if they are all one, then why do they keep going in different directions? Right? And why do they keep sending one another to all of these different places? Thank you, Barbara. And then she says, look, there are orthodox answers to all of these questions. But she says, but honestly, I've never properly understood any of the answers. She says, I accept those answers as earnest human efforts to describe something that simply cannot be described, which is the nature of God. She said, Sometimes I think we would probably be better off if we just left the whole subject alone. Like we just left God alone. Left the idea of God over here. Didn't bother with it. The Trinity, let's place that over here. Let's not think about it again. But then she says, but if you ever lay on your back and look up at the summer night sky full of stars, then you know how hard it is not to think about all of these things that you try to set aside. Because we live in a universe that begs questions. Where did this come from? What happened? What is this for? What is the value of things? Who or what or where or when is God? And we just can't help but do theology. At our best, we are tiny infants speaking gibberish communicating needs that we don't even understand to a God that we can't even comprehend. And then what happens is that God smiles back. Let 
Look again at verse 15. About halfway through the verse, it says, The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. So in other words, we, we are all adopted to be the sons of God. Now, A very quick aside here. Um, the reason it doesn't say the sons and daughters of God is because in this culture at this time, it was only sons who ever got an inheritance. Sorry, ladies. <laughs> You're out. Just goes to the boys. But Paul is making the, the point here. He's making the point. Oh, no, no, no. We are all adopted as sons. So regardless of your gender, if you're a man or a woman, we are all, we are all given the inheritance. So that's what he's saying there. Uh, meaning, for all of us, everything that the Father has belongs to us. Listen to that. Everything that the Father has belongs to us. We did not create it. We did not earn it. We do not understand it. We do not deserve it. But it is ours. Do you know the story of the prodigal son? In the story of the prodigal son, it's a story that Jesus told, a parable that Jesus told. Um, the son, who's a real piece of work, he takes his part of his inheritance from his father. His father's not even dead yet, but he demands cash from his dad, and he runs off, and he blows the money on a bunch of things that he thought would make him happy, and they probably did make him happy for a few nights, and then they made him miserable, and he found himself in a spot where he was way more miserable than he could ever imagine. He was penniless, uh, and he, he was worse. He was comparing himself to pigs, and he would have rather been a pig. So he had this epiphany. And he thought, you know what? I know what I'm going to do. He starts walking back home, back to his father's farm. And as he's walking back to his father's farm, he's rehearsing what he's going to say to convince his father to hire him as a minimum wage laborer on his farm. So he's going over this in his head, and he's thinking about how he's going to say this, and then he, he, sees, the, he sees the father and so the son uh, launches into his rehearsed speech and he says, Father, oh Father, I have sinned against heaven and sinned against you. And by the way, it's unclear from the text whether or not the son actually sincerely means the things that he's saying. There are some scholars who think that he actually means it, that he's being genuine, he's being sincere. There are other scholars who think he's just trying to tell his dad what he knows his dad wants to hear. So we don't even know, we don't even know if this guy is being sincere in what he's saying to his father. So, so we don't know his level of sincerity, but he says, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's ready to go on and on and on. He's ready to talk and talk and talk and to make his case for why he should be a minimum age earner on his father's farm. But do you know what his father heard while he was talking? And that's all that he needed to hear. That's all that he needed to hear. That was his boy. That was his boy. He was gone, and now he's back. 
And he talks, and I don't really care what he's saying. It keeps going on, but it just doesn't matter. That's my boy. And so the father runs. He runs out to, the, to, the, to his son, and he wraps his arm around him, and he wraps his clothes around him, and he wraps his love around him, and he wraps his kingdom around him, and he says, Everything that I have is yours. Everything that I have is yours. The father cuts him off. It does not matter what the son said. It did not matter his level of sincerity. The father did not hear one word that came out of that fool's mouth. All he heard was, Abba, ba, 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 ba. And so immediately the son is taken back into the father's household, not as a slave, as punishment for his sins, not as a hired worker so that he can earn back what he had lost. Not as a second-class child distinguishing him from his highly accomplished type A brother. No, no, no. But as a full-bodied, fully validated, fully accredited son of the father, full stop. We are like little children. And we will never graduate from this. On this side of heaven, at least. The most brilliant and theologically astute among us is only minusculely, slightly less stupid than the rest of us. And I just so slightly. We are like little children, and all we ever do is grasp for God. We grasp. We grasp for theology. All of, our, all of our theology, all of our obedience, all of our holiness, all of this is a flailing. All of this is a flailing in the direction of God. That's what we're doing. We are flailing in the direction of God. And while we flail toward him, while we grasp for him, we will encounter him. We will smack up against him every now and then. I mean, even a broken clock is, is right twice a day, correct? We will come up against God every now and then. But here's the thing. It's not so much that we grasp God. It's that God grasps us. That is how this works. It has always worked this way. And it will never not work this way. We flail toward God on our best days. Wonderful. But he grabs us. And if that doesn't make us more humble, then I do not know what will. Verse 16. There's this beautiful illustration of exactly the way that we are reassured of the way that God loves us and cares for us. And it says, it says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. So it's this, it's this beautiful image of, of when, when we're wondering, do I belong to God? Do I? Am I really God's child? And the Spirit says to our spirit, yes. 
and we say, we say, am I really loved? Am I really loved in spite of my theological flailing? In spite of my theological grasping? In spite of my theological ignorance with all of my blind spots? And in spite of the fact that I come to God with questionable intentions at best? Am I still loved by? And the Spirit says, yes. And we say, do I have full access to the full inheritance of God with Christ on a daily basis? Am I a co-heir with Jesus Christ? And can I live my life with uncommon boldness, knowing that I belong unconditionally to the Father? And the Spirit says, you know you do. You know you do. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Pray with me. Triune God, we thank you for the relationships to yourself that you give us as your children, as your brother sister, and as your friend. We thank you that we have this complex and beautiful and lofty relationship that we get to live into for the rest of our lives. And while we flail like infants, continue to look into our faces and show us your love. In your holy name we pray. Amen.